You're listening to the DolphinsTalk.com Podcast Network. Hello, Miami Dolphin fans, and welcome to the Same Old Dolphin Show, part of the DolphinsTalk.com podcast network. I'm Josh Katzker. With me today and every day is my brother from the exact same mother, Aaron the Brain. Aaron, say hello to the people. Hello to the people. It is after Christmas. We've gotten through it. And your Miami Dolphins gave everybody a wonderful Boxing Day evening with a 26-25 to victory over the Las Vegas Raiders in Las Vegas. And Brain, there has been a lot of talk about what happened in the fourth quarter of this game and how everything changed and how there was so much, there was just so much analysis of the big change that happened that helped the Dolphins win this game. And I have to say, I appreciate everyone and all of their thoughts about the fact that I changed my shirt at the end of the third quarter. And that is what allowed the Dolphins to turn everything around and win this game in Las Vegas. Dolphins Nation, you're welcome. Is this the shirt? This is actually not the shirt. I I have, you know, I'm I I fought the urge. I was like, do I just leave this shirt on for the next week until the Buffalo game? And I decided, you know what? That's probably not the right thing to do. Probably not going to leave this shirt on for a week straight. So this is not, in fact, not the shirt. I was wearing a long sleeve early 2000s Miami Dolphins logo t-shirt. And I took that shirt off at the end of the third quarter and changed into a mid-90s Dolphins logo short sleeve shirt. And that was the spark the Miami Dolphins needed to turn it on and defeat the Las Vegas Raiders. So, uh, everybody, I, 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 you're welcome, is what I have to say about that. You're welcome. Um, of course... The big thing is Ryan Fitzpatrick comes in with some absolute Fitz magic. I mean, just incredible stuff. He dives into his bag of tricks. He pulls it out again, and it provides the Dolphins with the spark that they needed. And then they got some help on just an absolute miraculous prayer of a pass aided by a personal foul penalty on the face mask and the dolphins find themselves miraculously in field goal position and then they win the game it's a pretty pretty remarkable brain what were you doing what was your reaction in real time when this happened because to me This was the only moment I can think of that compares to this as far as even coming close 
to stakes was the Ray Allen shot for the Miami Heat in the NBA Finals. Oh, and those stakes on. were obviously much come higher on. than this. But it, where it goes from, you're just thinking the game is over, there's no prayer, we've lost, to suddenly we've won. And yeah, all well, of our hopes just, are still I mean, alive. It, it, the, the easiest comparison is just going back a couple of years to the, the Miami Miracle. Yeah, but the Miami My- Miracle did not have the same sort of weight attached to it as this well, game. Well, it kind of did because we were still in a playoff race at that point. It 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 failed to have meaning because the Dolphins did not win a game the rest of the season. But at the time, it was early December, that game kept the Dolphins season alive the same way this game kept the Dolphins season alive. Um, so I would say that that's the, the closer uh, comparison. I would not throw it in the same comparison as uh, an NBA Finals game with your season completely on the line. Although, if the Dolphins lose this game, you're probably not feeling great about it. Uh, but, you know, considering the stakes of that Miami Heat team and everything that went into building that Miami Heat team and the fact that uh, if, if he doesn't hit that shot, They're three years into the big three and they've got one title to show for it. And everybody's looking at the entire organization as a failure. I don't think people are looking at the Dolphins as a failure if if Ryan Fitzpatrick doesn't hit that pass. So I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there as far as the stakes. But what was I thinking? The fourth quarter of this game was at the same time the most same old Dolphins thing I've ever seen and the least same old Dolphins thing I've ever seen. And I don't know what to make of it. I still don't know what to make of it. I was watching it and I was like, all right, I think this team is different. They're going to make it happen. And then they give up the long touchdown to Aguilar. And I'm like, Jesus, this is so same old Dolphins. Then we go down and we score. First, we go down there and we get inside the five-yard line. It looks like we're going to score a touchdown. I'm like, oh, my God. And then we drop a touchdown pass, essentially. And and we end up tying in. I'm like, all right, well, it was pretty same old Dolphins to not get in the end zone there. And then we give up the the defensive pass interference, the score to give up the lead. That's pretty same old Dolphins. But then to have the miraculous victory after they missed an extra point, it's, it's bizarre. Um, that was pretty outstanding. And, and, and then to go back and look at it, to really appreciate and probably further draw the comparison to the Miami miracle from a couple of years ago, ESPN's win probability meter or metric, or I don't know how it's calculated. I have no idea either. It's just, I think it's a ridiculous stat. It's one of those things where how could the stat possibly mean anything? It's the same thing with the playoff possibility percentages it's it's like how does this stat mean anything but somehow well, i guess there's and on any given play there's a per- certain percentage based on the history of plays that a certain result is going to happen and so however they came to it when there was 19 seconds left on the clock and the raiders were up 25 to 23 the miami dolphins or the oh, I should say the Las Vegas Raiders had a 99.9% chance of winning that game, meaning the Dolphins had a 0.1% chance of winning that game. 
That means they had a one in a thousand shot to win that game and they got it done. And it, it, it felt miraculous, especially, especially when you look at the throw that Ryan Fitzpatrick made with the guy pulling his face mask as he releases the ball. And the fact that it's Mac Hollins who dropped the pass that might have been a touchdown on the drive prior, coming up with the biggest catch of the game. I mean, it had team of destiny feel to it. It was really, really, really wild, especially after the Raiders took the steps. And in my opinion, there's been a lot of consternation about this, but in my opinion, did the exact right thing by falling on the ground and not scoring the touchdown and giving the Dolphins the ball back with a decent chunk of time left, especially after Ryan Fitzpatrick comes in and is flinging the ball all over the field. The last thing the Raiders want to do is punch the ball into the end zone and give the Dolphins the ball back with you know, a minute, minute and a half on the clock. So the Raiders decide they're going to run the clock down as far as it'll go before kicking the field goal to take the lead and then giving the ball back to the Dolphins with barely any time on the clock. Uh, You know, this was, you'll remember the uh, Falcons game earlier this season where Todd Gurley falls into the end zone to score the touchdown when they were trying not to score the touchdown And as a result of going into the end zone to score the touchdown to take the lead, the Lions got the ball back and were able to turn that into a victory. This is the same situation, except that, you know, the clock didn't expire while the Raiders had the ball. So that might be the one flaw. And the, the, I guess the idea is if you give the, the ball back to the other team with any time at all on the clock, there's a chance. And we've now seen the Dolphins a couple of times find a way to turn that chance into a game-winning score, which is pretty remarkable. But I thought they did the right thing there, so I was really feeling pretty down, and I was, and that it went from the Dolphins, basically, I don't want to say losing all hope of the postseason, but it went from the Dolphins needing a ton of help to have any chance at the playoffs to the Dolphins retaining control of their own destiny heading into the final week of the season. And we're going to talk about the playoffs and all of those permutations here in just a moment. But first, as we always do, a reminder to you, if you're not doing so already, to make sure you're following us on social media. I am at Amplified to Rock on Twitter. He is at Aaron the Brain. That's at A-A-Ron the Brain. The show is at Sam Old Dolphins. And our Facebook page is facebook.com slash Sam Old Dolphins. We invite you to give us a like over there. Download, rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate all of you taking some time out of your busy holiday schedules to leave us some positive feedback. Thank you to everybody that has done that. We we really, really appreciate it. And, and those of you that have reached out to us on social media, thank you. We appreciate that as well. All, all of your kind words are greatly appreciated. And even if you haven't commented to us, you haven't said anything, you just listen and you enjoy listening to us a couple times each week. Thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to listen to a couple of schmucks like us ramble on about the Miami Dolphins. It is really greatly appreciated. And I'm not going to forget about it this time. Go to YouTube.com. Hi, YouTube. Hello there. And make sure that you subscribe to the Dolphins Talk YouTube channel. Do a search for Dolphins Talk, all one word. You will find us there. And you can find every episode of the same old Dolphins show 
up there on the YouTube channel for Dolphins Talk. And of course, DolphinsTalk.com is your one-stop shop for all things Miami Dolphins. Make sure to visit DolphinsTalk.com each and every day for all of the latest Miami Dolphins news and information. And now it is time to get into the good, the bad, and the ugly of this game. We are going to start today by talking about the bad. Then we're going to talk about the ugly, and then we're going to finish with the good, because this is the last show we're recording in the year 2020. Well, the last show we're recording together in the year 2020. Uh, I'll be doing a preview show for the Buffalo game later this week with uh, a a very special guest from DolphinsTalk.com. And the brain is going to be uh, heading out on a little trip for New Year's Eve, but he may may be able to get us uh, a little segment with his thoughts on the upcoming game against the Buffalo Bills to close out the season. But so we want to end today's show on a positive note. So we're going to end by talking about the good. Um, And so before we get into the good and the ugly, let's first start talking about the bad. And I think the only place to start this conversation is we got to talk about Tua and I, when we say that his performance was bad, I don't mean that this is some sort of judgment on the player himself, but as far as what he was doing in this game on Saturday, it was it was not a particularly good performance by Tua. He seemed hesitant. He seemed um, unwilling to throw the ball downfield and you know, really try to take some shots against this Raiders defense. And we're noticing that that's a little bit of a trend with Tua. And as a result, after three quarters, Brian Flores pulls him out of the game, brings in the relief pitcher, Ryan Fitzpatrick, who comes in and, you know, leads the Dolphins to a victory, which, uh, you know, ultimately the way in which it was won was pretty unlikely. But, uh, you know, it. so this was not a great performance by Tua, Bryn. No, it wasn't. And, you know, you can look at his numbers and you can like the the completion percentage and you can you can look at his QBR and say, hey, he had a better QBR than Derek Carr did. Uh, But I don't think that tells you the story of what was happening in this game. And uh, look, there were. There are, there are issues with the play calling as well. It is not entirely on Tua, but not every single passing play that was called was designed to be, you know, thrown five yards and in. Uh, there were opportunities for Tua to make some throws down the field, and he played it safe. And then the couple of times that he did throw the ball uh, beyond 10 yards, frankly, it was ugly. Uh, he had a throw that some are going to call it a drop by Mac Hollins. I think it would have needed to be a great catch and not necessarily one that you can really expect Mac Hollins to make. And the thing that, that you need to discern here is that it is different when you throw the ball low because it is a tight window and it's the only place the ball needed to be or could have been to give the receiver a chance to make the catch so to avoid a negative play like a pick or a, or a batted ball. Mac Hollins was wide open on that play and there was a clear lane to throw and Tua was not encumbered by pressure or anything. The ball was just low. It was underthrown. And he also had another ball 
where Mike Kosicki was running down the seam, sort of a corner route, and he underthrew that one, and it nearly got picked off. So Tua had a couple of throws. I think he maybe had three throws that went beyond 10 yards in the air, and I don't think he completed any of them, and a couple of them were, were flat out ugly. And then you take into, and then you add on to the fact that behind in the game, late in the third quarter, he's holding on to the ball when guys are running open. He looks unsure of where to go with the ball. And it felt like the game was starting to slip away at that point. And it honestly, I was surprised that Brian Flores made the move when he did. But the fact that he made it when he did made a whole lot of sense because I even com- I even tweeted on Twitter after that last sack. I said, Tua right now is looking a lot like the Tua that we saw prior to him getting benched against Denver. And sure enough, when Miami got the ball back, it was Ryan Fitzpatrick uh, under center. Uh, and so it, Tua did not get benched for no reason in this game. He had a bad game. I, I won't say it was an awful game. I don't think he was awful. And part of me wishes that he would have gotten the opportunity in the fourth quarter to bounce back because I think at some point, and we'll get into this, at some point, Tua is going to, they're going to need to allow Tua that opportunity uh, to do that. But the fact is, he was struggling. You've got Ryan Fitzpatrick. Ryan Fitzpatrick was brought in to give the team a spark. He gave them that spark, and they won the game because of it. Hard to get on Brian Flores for that. Yeah, and I think this is the conversation that we're going to have now for a little while. And you see, it seems like everybody with any kind of platform and any kind of opinion, whether it's about football or about the Dolphins, has been opining about uh, has been sort of opining about the Dolphins quarterback situation and saying either that Flores needs to just go with Ryan Fitzpatrick and let him be the starter or, you know, or then you're also getting the more nuanced sort of evaluations of the situation. And and I tweeted out a couple of different things uh, this afternoon uh, on on Monday from a couple of people, one from Kevin Dern from right here at Dolphins Talk and also Chris Kaufman put out a thread. And basically what it boils down to is that, as you can imagine, as is often the case, is that this conversation is one that needs to be a bit more nuanced. It feels like the Dolphins are confident going with Tua as their starter and going with a certain set of concepts that they're going to run with Tua on offense. And if those things work out, great. Dolphins get the win. And if things don't work out, they know that they've got Ryan Fitzpatrick in their back pocket. But what it ultimately boils down to, and the reason that Tua is the guy that is best equipped to be the starter, is because the floor with Tua is higher than it is with Ryan Fitzpatrick because with Ryan Fitzpatrick, he's going out there and throwing interceptions all over the field because he is so such a gunslinger and that is his, is his mentality that he is more prone to those kind of killer backbreaking turnovers, whereas Tua, at least at this point in his career, 
because of his, whether you want to call it discipline or you want to call it reluctance to throw the ball into tight windows, um, he is less inclined to make that risky pass. And so at this point, it seems like the Dolphins feel comfortable giving Tua this slightly more conservative offensive approach to run. And if it gets to a point where it doesn't work, which has happened twice in the seven games, it has happened two times, happened against Denver and happened against Vegas on Saturday. The Dolphins have, you know, Flores has made the decision to pull Tua from the game and bring Fitzpatrick in. Both times, and I'm going to say this, the decision to bring Fitzpatrick in and add a spark worked both times. The Dolphins didn't win both games, but they were very close to pulling off the game against Denver, and they actually did end up winning the game against Vegas, although if things go, you know, it's a game of inches. If things go a couple different ways, perhaps they, they lose the game against Vegas as well. But the fact is, the offense was given a charge with the arrival of Ryan Fitzpatrick. And, and I would encourage you to read Kaufman's thread because he points out the fact that, yeah, Ryan Fitzpatrick is a gunslinger and he's YOLO. You know, he's going to throw the ball down the field. And he, he's not going to care. He's going to go for the 50-50 balls and let his receivers do their thing. But with that being the case, in the game against the Jets, which was the game he started, we get to the fourth quarter and the Dolphins still only have 13 points. So is it that? significant of an upgrade that you need to have Ryan Fitzpatrick start. Clearly the dolphins feel that it's okay to go with Tua. At least that's what they're writing with at this point. I don't have a pro. I don't look at it as Tua's has got to start because Tua's has got a higher floor. Frankly, I, I don't know that Tua has a higher floor. I think Tua has a higher ceiling, but I think he's got a lower floor because frankly, you know what you're going to get with Ryan Fitzpatrick. If, if the floor with Ryan Fitzpatrick is he's going to throw a couple of interceptions, but he's also going to drive you down the field for a couple of touchdown drives. I think his floor is higher than a Tua floor of he's just going to dink and dunk and we're going to have a bunch of three and outs and, and drives that, that go nowhere. Um, and, and we fail to move the ball. Frankly, I think that floor is a lot lower. But the thing with Tua is that when Tua gets into a rhythm, his ability, his accuracy, uh, is just on a different level and his ability to make people miss, get on the run, and then still make throws on the run and still be accurate on the run, I think is a special trait that Fitzpatrick doesn't possess. Uh, and so I think Tua's ceiling is higher, but Fitzpatrick has a higher floor. The thing is, is that they made the decision that they're going to go with Tua, and I think they're committing to that decision, but at the same time, they're not pigeonholing themselves into this idea that just because the starting quarterback is the starting quarterback doesn't mean he's immune from being replaced in that given game. And they're, they're still, te they're still treating it as 
a, a learning experience, which is if two is going to make the same mistakes over and over again, they're not just going to keep throwing him out there and allowing him to make those mistakes, particularly in a really close game when your season is on the line because you're in a playoff race, when you also have a known commodity in Ryan Fitzpatrick back there. The and And so I don't necessarily have a problem with it, but when they did it the first time against Denver, we mentioned, we said, well, this is something that, it's not really a big deal if it happens once, but if if a trend starts to appear, this could be a problem down the road where at a certain point, Tua is going to start looking over his shoulder and realizing if he doesn't make enough plays, he's going to be pulled and he's going to start pressing. Frankly, I think he looked like he was starting to press in the third quarter because he knew that this move was coming. So I think we've already started to see it. Now I don't think I don't think it's a horrible thing right now. I think Tua is a really great teammate. Ryan Fitzpatrick is a great leader and mentor. They have a really good relationship and the locker room seems to be very together right now as a unit and I think they're behind Brian Flores 100%. So I don't think this is a problem right now. And I don't think it's a problem for the rest of the season. Where this becomes a problem is if this lingers on to next year. And so one of two things has to happen next season. We could could ride this Ryan Fitzpatrick train as long as it takes us. And hell, if it takes us all the way to the freaking Super Bowl, I know it's not taking us to the Super Bowl, but if it does, if by some miracle, if by some miracle, the Ryan Fitzpatrick train, uh, the Woodstock, you know, 2.0 train takes us to the Super Bowl, then it's fantastic. But next season... Look, you drafted to a number five overall. You're going to get him some weapons. You're going to hopefully get him a little bit more of an upgrade on the offensive line. This offense hopefully will have another year under, whether it's Chan Gailey or somebody else that comes in that's running this a very similar system so that they don't have a third playbook in three years. You're going to have that. You're going to have a whole offseason for Tua. Next season... needs to be about this being Tua's team. And that means one of two things. It either means that Ryan Fitzpatrick is strictly your backup quarterback that does not come in unless Tua gets hurt. Or Ryan Fitzpatrick cannot be on the roster next year because at, at a certain point, It will become a quarterback controversy. It will split the locker room. It will affect your your quarterback. And even more important than that, it's going to it's going to affect the decision and the the grading out of Tua when you're making the decision as far as the future of this franchise is Tua the franchise quarterback. Because Ryan Fitzpatrick's not going to be here for five years. You know, at a certain point, you got to know what you've got in your starting quarterback. And you're not going to know that if every time he gets into an adverse situation, you're pulling him at the beginning of the fourth quarter. 
great quarterbacks, a lot of great quarterbacks, will have games where they're struggling and it's into the fourth quarter. And then a, a switch goes off and they're able to turn it around. We don't know if Tua has that in him, to be perfectly honest. The only game that we've really given him the chance to do it was the Arizona game, and he did it. Now, the difference is, is he was playing well in that Arizona game before the fourth quarter, and it was more of a continuance of the way he had already been playing, where he was playing well and he took it to a new level in the clutch. But we didn't give him the chance in the games that he hasn't played well to turn it around himself. And if you don't give him that opportunity, what he the moment's always going to be too big for him. At a certain point, you gotta you gotta get rid of the security blanket. Right now, Ryan Fitzpatrick is the security blanket, and I feel warm and cozy right now, and I feel super happy that we have that security blanket. But enjoy it while we've got it this year, because I don't think you can have it next year. Yeah, and I think that's something. It, next season is going to be next season, and I think once you've had Tua with the opportunity to spend a complete off season, a proper off season, proper training camp and and an opportunity to spend a bit more time with presumably this same offensive coordinator. Um, I think you'll you'll really get a better sense of who Tua is as a quarterback next year. I, I think the way to look at this and this and I don't want to get into this whole conversation again about you know, Tua being compared to Justin Herbert and, and Joe Burrow and, and these other rookie quarterbacks because it's it's really not an apples to apples comparison. And you can't say that because a rookie quarterback has put up great performances, even historically great performances as uh, Justin Herbert has done this year as a rookie, you can't say that that is necessarily going to dictate who that quarterback is going to be for the remainder of his career. A lot of quarterbacks, there have been rookie quarterbacks who have had great rookie seasons and then completely fallen off a cliff. I mean, look at Carson Wentz. Granted, he got hurt. Look at uh, Robert Griffin III. Again, another quarterback who got hurt here. But there are plenty of stories of of quarterbacks who had fantastic rookie seasons and then fell off a cliff. And then there were also plenty of stories about quarterbacks who didn't have great um, rookie seasons. Look at the Drew Breeses, the John Elways of the world. These are not quarterbacks. Peyton that, Manning. Peyton Manning. These are not quarterbacks that had incredible blow you away type of seasons right at the beginning. And so what I'm, what I'm saying is not that, not necessarily that I expect Tua to become one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. We don't necessarily need him to be that. Do I hope that he becomes one? Absolutely. But he's not, based on what we've seen so far this year, he is not one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, and he's not one of the worst quarterbacks of all time. He's a rookie quarterback making playing like a rookie quarterback. And yes, it's skewed because of the kinds of performances and the kind of numbers that Joe, that uh, Justin Herbert is putting up this season. But again, the situations are apples and oranges. So you can't, you can't look at what Herbert is doing and go, Oh, two is not the guy. What is largely happening here is confirmation bias from a lot of people. You've got a lot of people who had their doubts about Tua, whether it was his health, whether it was his skills, whatever, who had concerns about him coming in, who are now seeing sort of this tentative, reluctant play from him, who are now saying, oh, 
yep, this is exactly why I didn't like him. There were better options out there. And I mean, 90% of people will have told you that Tua was the better prospect than Justin Herbert coming into the draft. Anyway, I don't want to get into that bog down in that conversation anymore. I want to move on. We still got some other things that we need to cover from this game. Because unfortunately, Tua wasn't the only one that had a sort of bad performance. You've got another one that you want to share, Bren. Yeah, Byron Jones. Uh, look, Byron Jones has gotten a lot of credit this year. He's a really good cover corner. Uh, but with the game on the line, two big plays by the Raiders, and both of them came at the expense of Byron Jones. Um, both of them had questionable calls. Uh, but at the end of the day, Byron Jones gave up, what, an 85-yard touchdown to Nelson Aguilar and then had a huge defensive pass interference that ultimately set up the go-ahead field goal by the Raiders that gave them a 99.9% chance to win the game. And this is this is a this is not like this is the first time that we've seen Byron Jones struggle when tested. Here's the thing with Byron Jones. We we'll talk to we're blue in the face about how one of the reasons that Xavier Howard gets tested so much in spite of the fact that he is an unprecedented ball hawk and has is arguably the defensive player of the year one of the reasons he gets tested so much is because Byron Jones is so physical and so good in coverage the problem is is that as great as Byron Jones is in coverage when the ball gets in the air, he is not great. And fr- frankly, he's not good. He, he he seems to choke. He gets nervous. He starts to grab. He does not pick the ball off. This is not like a one-year thing with him. He has terrible ball skills. And it's because instinctually, he sh- seems to shut down when the ball is in the air. And so when you see these plays that are essentially 50-50 balls against Nelson Aguilar. Nelson Aguilar gets the better of him because Byron Jones, frankly, chokes when the ball is in the air. He just simply, he does not play the ball well. And look, the the off- the touchdown that Aguilar scored, you could make an argument that there was a, a push-off. I think there was clearly a push-off. Yes, was it a clearly was. What, was it a significant enough push-off to warrant offensive pass interference? It's debatable. Should have been. It, it's debatable. But it wasn't called. He didn't... He, Byron Jones failed to make a play on the ball. Aguilar made the play on the ball. Caught it. Ends up running for a touchdown. The next possession. The pass interference. Now this one got very heated. To me, look, the ball is in the air. Byron Jones is beaten by about a step, half a step. No problem. He could easily play the ball, which he does. But before he plays the ball, he does what Byron Jones does. And that is he chokes when the ball is in the air. And so he grabs on to Nelson Aguilar's shoulder. 
grab is now you can really, argue you can really... argue you can argue whether or not that had an effect on Nelson Aguilar or not the fact is clear as day if you're watching that in full speed or especially in slow motion clear as day you see Byron Jones grab onto the shoulder of Nelson Aguilar before letting go and jumping up and making a play on the ball. When the ball is in the air, if you grab onto the receiver, you are, regardless of how much you are altering that receiver, you are putting yourself out there to be called for defensive pass interference because that is a snap judgment call where the official is going to look at it and they're going to say, hey, he grabbed the he grabbed the receiver. The, the official's not going to go back there. I mean, I guess you could challenge it and they could go back, but, but let's face it, they're not really overturning these pass interference calls. But they, if you I, put they, your they, hand they don't have that rule on the receiver's anyway. shoulder before you make a play on the ball, it's going to be called pass interference. And the fact is, he didn't have to do it. He did it because he choked. And that's what Byron Jones does when the ball is in the air. And frankly, we're, we've been lucky this year because not many quarterbacks have tested Byron Jones for whatever reason. When you really think about it, I, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the last I saw, Byron Jones is giving up, I believe, a passer rating of over 100 when teams actually throw to him. The thing is, teams aren't throwing at him because they're just assuming, hey, Byron Jones has this guy covered. But the fact is, when you got one guy on the other end who's giving up a passer rating of about 45, leads the league in passes defense, leads the league in interceptions, is going to be the defensive player of the year, at a certain point, you got to start going after the other guy who might be the best damn cover corner in the league, but he's not going to pick the ball off. And more often than not, he's going to give you a pass interference or, uh, you know, he's going to give up a completion. Well, so I think we've gotten lucky that not more teams have tested Byron Jones all season long. And frankly, we've talked about, I don't know if we talked about it, maybe it was just Twitter fodder, but we talked about the potential that uh, that Xavier Howard may be uh, looking to restructure his contract, get a new contract extension, get a raise, partially because he's no longer the highest paid corner on the team because Byron Jones got that contract this year. If, if, if Xavier Howard does that, you got to pay Xavier Howard, and quite frankly, at that point, Byron Jones might be the corner that you want to trade. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you know, this was going to be the transition to the ugly, which was, and I've got my eyes, sorry, I got my eyes on the Bills game over here. Uh, we're recording during the Monday night football game uh, between the Bills and the Patriots, which influences uh, the Dolphins' future a little bit. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. But, um, you know, I was going to transition from your talking about Byron Jones as, as the bad to talking about the officiating as the ugly, because I really did believe that there should have been an offensive pass interference called on the Aguilar touchdown, and there should not have been a defensive pass interference on the uh, uh, when it was called on on Byron Jones, which completely sort of swung where the game was headed at that point. Um, and I think that 
there has to be some consistency with refereeing. And I, and I don't like to complain about the officials, but as far as ugly goes, there wasn't a ton of ugly in this game. I guess you could say, uh, you know, Jakeem Grant made a couple of bad special teams plays. There was a an ugly special teams uh, moment on a missed tackle by Clayton Fedgdalem early in the game, although Fedgdalem made up for it on the fake punt run that he had. But, uh, you know, and then Jakeem Grant getting injury, getting injured was ugly. And it sounds like the Dolphins are going to be without him at least for week 17. And if there is a season beyond that, it is doubtful that he's going to be part of that at this point. But, uh, you know, the officiating and the inconsistency there was really problematic because I think if you're going to call the DPI on Byron Jones and whether Byron Jones should have been in that position to allow that DPI, you know, to even put him in that position, then, you know, that's one thing. But if you're going to call that DPI referee, then you've got to call the pass interference, the offensive pass interference on the play before. And if you're not going to call that one, don't call the second one. But regardless, they did, the referees did what they did. And I, I, I wasn't particularly happy about that. And I don't want to dwell too much on it. Um, let's move to the good because there was plenty of good. First and foremost, as we touched on earlier, Ryan Fitzpatrick is good. Ryan Fitzpatrick came in and was the spark the Dolphins needed, the the bullpen guy. He comes in out of the pen and he stops the bleeding and allows the Dolphins to really turn it up offensively. It's amazing to look at the comparison of stats in this game because you've got Tua, who was 17 to 22 for 94 yards, and that's through three quarters. And then Fitzpatrick, just in the fourth quarter, goes 9 of 13 for 182 yards. I mean, that is the statistic. A lot of times the numbers themselves can be deceiving, but these numbers are not deceiving. They show you that Ryan Fitzpatrick came in there and threw it. And okay, great. Granted, I'll give you the Miles Gaskin touchdown was uh, just a heck of a play by Miles Gaskin. And that's another guy we got to talk about being good because Gaskin was terrific. Um, you know, a lot of people were calling for Ahmed to remain the guy who get the bulk of the carries at running back in this game because of the performance that he had put in the previous week against New England. But let me tell you something, this guy Miles Gaskin came in and he was just a ball of fire. And when he's in the backfield, he offers the additional pass protection that we talked about. That is definitely an upgrade over what Savan Ahmed offers and just uh, just the, the skills on the ball and his ability to make moves and fake guys out of their shoes. This is a man that does not stop. He gets his motor running and it just goes. And it was just a great performance from Miles Gaskin. And I think if you're a Dolphin fan, you got to be excited about what that could offer you going forward because, uh, you know, I mean, listen, Miles Gaskin, I don't want to say he's the long-term answer at running back in and of himself, but he could certainly be part of whatever the long-term solution is at running back for the Dolphins. And he could be part of this backfield next year, perhaps leading the way for a rookie running back, perhaps, you know, working in committee with a rookie running back. But Miles Gaskin, I, you know, I, I've, there have been times this season where I thought, you know, Miles Gaskin's just a guy. He's just a guy. He is at least in this game and at least up against Savon Ahmed and the other running backs that this team has had this season. Miles Gaskin, fantastic on Saturday night. Miles Gaskin is not just a guy. 
Miles Gaskin is a good running back. Now, is Miles Gaskin ever going to be an elite running back? I don't know. Uh, I think, you know, it, you would need a lot of things to go. Uh, you know, if, if the offensive line was elite and the Dolphins wanted to run the ball 30, 40 times a game, uh, and Miles Gaskin was the lead dog there and he had the opportunities, I think he could certainly be a Pro Bowl caliber player. Um, I don't know that that will ever be in the cards for Miles Gaskin, but I certainly believe that he is a good running back uh, and a capable running back of uh, to be uh, to be a starter on a good running team in this league. And looking just this year, like, look, this is a guy who came into the season as the third string running back. Uh, he he largely, I mean, I I mean, he did play and he and he did actually was the most productive back for the team the first couple of weeks of the season, but he didn't really start to get the lion's share of the work until about a month into the season, or at least like week three or week four into the season. Then he missed, you know, a considerable amount of time with injury, then missed a game because of COVID. And here we are going into the last game of the season. He is 105 yards away from scrimmage from having a 1,000-yard from scrimmage rookie season. Well, not rookie season. 1,005-yard or 1,000-yard from scrimmage season, which is an impressive feat, especially considering that this is a team that, by and large, for the majority of the season, has struggled to open up lanes for their running backs. So what Miles Gaskin is doing, not just running the ball, but also catching the ball, uh, he is absolutely going to be a part of this offense. But it may not be as the starting running back uh, going forward long term, but it may very well be in that James White role uh, where James White has been an integral part of the of the New England Patriots offense for uh, it really hasn't been that long. But it seems like it's been already like six, seven years now that James White has been this integral part of the of the Patriots offense. And he's never really been the starting running back. And that's, I think, the ideal situation here for the Dolphins is you get a stud running back and Miles Gaskin ends up being your kind of change of pace. And it's going to be a committee between Miles Gaskin. I think Savan Ahmed has done some things this year that show you that he's going to be on the roster next year. And the the Dolphins can can really have a young running back uh running back committee going forward next year with those two guys I think even even Patrick Laird I think has his role on this team and is a nice little backup running back and I think if you go into next year with Miles Gaskin, Savon Ahmed and Patrick Laird and then you add in a stud running back that you draft in let's say the first round maybe the second round now I think you've got a really good stable of running backs, uh, and it's just a matter of uh, you know tightening up that offensive line. Which I frankly give them some credit. Over the last month, this Dolphins rushing offense has not been bad. Over the last month of the season, the Dolph and and this is what you want. You always say when you get to December and you get to playoff time, you got to be able to run the football. The Dolphins have been able to run the football the last few weeks, and that's pretty exciting. And a lot of that goes to Miles Gaskin and Savon Ahmed. And frankly, the offensive line deserves a little bit of credit there as well. They absolutely do. Everybody, I mean, it's just been a really 
great performance from the Dolphins' backfield and that Dolphins' offensive line. And, I mean, if there's an aspect of this team that you're really excited to see how they move forward, it's that offensive line. Uh, Really excited to see how they progress moving into next season. Of course, all of the good didn't happen in Vegas. Obviously, the come-from-behind victory, the miracle win, that's all good. But the Dolphins had a lot of good go their way in addition to what happened on the field in Las Vegas, because on Sunday, basically every single thing that could have happened to give the Dolphins some playoff cushion happened. Uh, The Baltimore Ravens defeated the New York Giants. Okay, that game actually is pretty inconsequential because as it stands, uh, if the Ravens had lost that game and then won in week 17 and the Dolphins lost to the Bills, the Ravens would still would end up having the strength of victory tiebreaker over the Dolphins. So this game, that game ended up being meaningless. But Saturday night, we find out that the Cleveland Browns had a COVID outbreak. They had a player test positive for COVID and all of the Browns receivers were considered close contacts and had to quarantine and were not able to go fly to New Jersey to take on the Jets on Sunday. So the shorthanded Browns traveled to the Meadowlands where they lost to Adam Gase and the New York Jets 23 to 16. So the Browns, huge loss. And the other thing about this that is, remarkable (laughs) is that um, by winning this game and the, with the combination of the Jaguars uh, losing to the Chicago bears, the jets clinched not being able to have the first pick in the draft, which is amazing. So in addition to helping the dolphins out by, by hurting the Browns, the jets make sure that Trevor Lawrence is not coming to the AFC East. Fantastic news. Additionally, the Pittsburgh Steelers defeated the Indianapolis Colts. Now, this, if had the result gone the other way, there was a chance that the Buffalo Bills could clinch the number two seed in the AFC playoffs. And we're going to talk about this in a minute. They could have clinched this week because Indianapolis lost this game and Pittsburgh won it. The Bills cannot clinch the number two seed. Which I, you know, so there's still a chance they rest players. We'll talk about that shortly. But at any rate, the Colts losing is a positive thing for the Dolphins. Additionally, on Sunday night football, the Green Bay Packers pretty much just blew the Tennessee Titans out of the building. So the Titans lost as well. So just looking at the playoff picture, the Dolphins now have a pretty clear way into the playoff, right? We, we already know if they beat Buffalo, they're in. But the thing to look at it, the way to look at it really, is that in order for the Dolphins to miss the playoffs now, four results have to, four games have to go the wrong way in order for the Dolphins to miss the play, in, in order to miss the playoffs. Because if the Dolphins should lose to Buffalo, they still get into the playoffs if the Browns, Ravens, or Colts lose their Week 17 game, okay? So, obviously, the easiest thing is go into the game in Buffalo, win in Buffalo, you make the playoffs. Okay, that's obviously idea number one. That's what you really want to do. But 
if the Dolphins should lose to Buffalo, and, you know, let's be honest, that's a tough place to go and win a game, especially, and Buffalo is, you know, a lot of people are touting the Bills as one of the very best teams in the NFL, and I think that's probably fair. Um, perhaps they're Super Bowl contenders. Perhaps they're the team that's set up best in the AFC to knock off the Chiefs. Whatever. This isn't a Bills podcast. We're not going to spend time talking about that today. Um, but if the Dolphins lose, they can still get into the playoffs if one of those other teams were to also lose. But <laughs> this is where things get a little tricky is that all of these results are pretty difficult. I mean, the Colts are 14-point favorites at home against the Jacksonville Jaguars. The Ravens are 11-point favorites at home against the Cincinnati Bengals, who are on a two-game winning streak, incidentally. Perhaps the best chance for the Dolphins to get some help outside in Week 17 is now that the Browns lost that game to the Jets, they have a huge game against the Pittsburgh Steelers in Week 17. Now, the Pittsburgh Steelers just end, snapped a three-game losing streak to win this game uh, against the Colts on Sunday. That's big. A lot of people are speculating because they got forced into having a bye very early in the season that the Steelers might use this as an opportunity to rest their players. That's a possibility. Another possibility that I would pose is that the Pittsburgh Steelers have been playing such poor football for the last three weeks. If you've seen any kind of Pittsburgh Steelers game, you've seen them be very bad. And suddenly in the second half of this game against the Colts, their offense came to life. So perhaps there's an argument to be made that maybe Mike Tomlin doesn't want to give his players a week off now that they found something and then just trust that it'll still be there in two weeks, that maybe he wants to go out and let his team give it all they've got against the Browns. Maybe that's a possibility. Either way, the Browns, uh, the Browns, uh, are they at home? Yes, they're at home. The game is in Cleveland against the Steelers, but that might be the best chance of the Dolphins getting help elsewhere in week 17. Again, the idea here is there's just some cushion for the Dolphins should they fail to beat Buffalo on Sunday. But that wasn't the only good news. There was more good news on Sunday. The Carolina Panthers defeated the Washington football team. Well, what does that have to do with anything? This is what it has to do with. It makes them being a team in the NFC South gives them a stronger record. Therefore, the Atlanta Falcons, who also lost to the Atlanta Falcons, also lost to Kansas City. But with Carolina having a stronger strength of schedule, that means that the Houston Texans, who lost to the Cincinnati Bengals, now possess the third pick in the NFL draft. But except that the Texans don't possess that pick. The Miami Dolphins do. The Dolphins currently hold the Texans pick. And so the only way that that pick could get worse is if the Texans win on Sunday. And the Texans are matched up against the Tennessee Titans, who, because of their loss on Sunday to Green Bay, have to win to make it into the playoffs. So there is a very real possibility that your Miami Dolphins could win on Sunday and go to the playoffs 
and also possess the third pick in the 2021 NFL draft. There was a lot of good news on Sunday. Of course, the news really that we've got to talk about, Brain, and how it really most directly impacts the Dolphins is, is the Bills thing. You know, we were we were sort of hoping, I, I, I don't know about you, but I was sort of hoping that the Bills would clinch the two seed this week. They currently lead the Patriots on Monday Night Football. Um, because if they had wrapped up the two seed this week, there'd be literally nothing for them to play for next week. And with not having a bye, it is likely that they would rest players. Now we've got the situation where they're coming in, they're coming into this game against the Dolphins, knowing that they need to equal or better the Steelers' result in order to secure the two seed. And knowing that a loss could see them, depending on what happens today, the loss could see them drop all the way down to as low as the four seed. As it stands right now, if the Dolphins win on, if the Dolphins win on Sunday against the Bills, the Dolphins will be the five seed in the AFC. <laughs> and so there's a world in which the Dolphins beat the Bills on Sunday. Bills finishes the four seed in the AFC. The Dolphins finishes the five, and then they turn around and basically both teams just hang out in Buffalo for a week because the next week's game will be a playoff game in the same stadium between the Dolphins and the Bills. So the question really becomes how much brain, and, and maybe we'll talk about this as we get later into the week and we get prepared for our preview and we get a little bit more clarity if we get some more clarity about how these teams want to proceed. But maybe there's a hope that the Bills will say, eh, you know what, this two seed is not worth you know, really pushing ourselves for let's rest. Let's give our guys some rest and we can, you know, we'll, we'll rest it and we'll fight hard in the playoffs. So first off there, there's also a world where the bills there, there's a couple other worlds here. <laughs> there, there's a world where the bills lose this game tonight. They win that game next week against Miami and then they still play Miami the following week as a 3-6 matchup. That's true. There's also a world where the Bills win today. They lose next week. Wait, they win today. No, they and then they they win next week and and the Dolphins but they still end up as the 3 seed. Uh well no. There's still I'm a world there's, of, brain, there's still, there's still a world, a world there there's there is a good let's put it this way. There is a good chance <laughs> This is some good permutations. Depending Yeah, depending on what happened there's so many different things that can happen, but there is a good chance that the Bills are going to play the Miami Dolphins in the first week of the playoffs. So, there are two things here at stake as far as Buffalo's headspace going into this game. The first and foremost thing is, which is always the case, is what are you playing for? Like, what is the best thing that could happen? And what they're playing for is the potential of being the number two seed, which means the potential of having a home game in the second round of the playoffs. And if something goes well for you, uh, you know, if you win that second round game and the number one seed loses th their game the following week, you also get a home game for the conference championship game. So you potentially have three home games. 
And there's a possibility. The is, there's a possibility that the Bills may have up to like six thousand fans in the stadium for their for their home playoff game. If that makes yeah. a difference. So I mean, do you look at that and you do you do you? First off, I don't think the coaches are looking at that and they're thinking, oh well, we got to win so that we get the six thousand ticket sales. I don't. I don't think that's crossing uh, Sean McDermott's mind in in preparation of this game. Ultimately, you're thinking about home field. Now, what do you have to lose? The biggest thing that you have to lose is injuries. Right. I mean, if if Josh Allen plays in this game and gets hurt. If Stefan Diggs plays in this game and gets hurt. If John Brown plays in this game and gets hurt. That has a huge impact on Buffalo's ability to win regardless of where they're playing in the playoffs. And does the home field matter enough in a a season where you're talking about maybe having 6,000 fans? Does it really matter? Because I'm looking at the Bills record right now. They're 6-1 and at home and they're 5-2 and on the road. Uh, I, you know, I look at the Kansas city chiefs are the best team in football right now. Six and one at home, eight, no on the road. I look at the dolphins. They're five and three at home. They're five and two on the road. The, the home road splits don't seem to be, you know, adding up to a whole lot of anything right now. And it seems pointless to risk injury, but now let's say, Hey, look, Injuries can happen. You just got to play. We want to play. Well, there's a world where Buffalo beats Miami if they lose this game tonight. There's a world where they beat Miami, but Miami still sneaks into the playoffs and then they play Miami the following week. So does Buffalo, with really not that much to play for, want to go out and show their best game plan going into a game against a team that they may very well be playing the following week. Miami, on the other hand, they got to win. Miami does not want to rely. I mean, they could easily miss the playoffs if they don't win. So Miami's got to win. Miami's got to do everything that they can do to win this game. So Buffalo could easily look at this game and say, hey, we're going to go out there and we're going to try to win. We're not going to show everything. We're going to play this thing like a preseason game. And we're going to see everything that Miami throws at us. And we're going to play it very close to the vest. And that way, if we end up playing against Miami next week, we know what they, what they want to do. We know how they're going to attack us. And they have no idea how we're going to attack them. I think that there is way more at stake for Buffalo to really go out there and play this game like it's a supremely important game. Uh, than there is for them to gain by wrapping up the number two seed. I just don't think there's a lot there. Uh, it, it would be a different story if this was last season or every season before that where the number two seed was getting a bye. That would be huge. They would have definitely something to play for there. But without the bye, I don't think there's a big difference between a two and three seed I don't think that there's there's much difference between playing in Pittsburgh and playing in Buffalo. Uh, but, hey, I, I, time will tell on this one. But if I'm Sean McDermott, you know, regardless of what happens, 
And it, well, here's the other thing. Yeah, like you were saying, Buffalo could end up being the f- falling to the four seed, and Miami would be the five seed. So they can play that way too. Um, I just don't think there's much. Uh, if I'm Sean McDermott, I'm I'm treating this game like a preseason game. Maybe maybe I'm putting my starters out there for like a quarter or a half. But he, I don't know. Even then, it's like why even play them then? Yeah, I and and like I, I said, I think you're treating it like it's a fourth preseason game. You're resting all of your significant players, and you're and you're just you're going to go out there and you're going to try to win. You're going to compete, but you're not going to to show a lot of anything, and you're going to go out there and you're going to play with backups. Yeah, you're going to play it play it close to the vest, like you said. Treat it like a preseason game, and you know. The thing that I was thinking about as you were talking about this is, wouldn't it be interesting if the Dolphins decided, because of the fact that, you know, there's the the real possibility that they could end up facing the Bills in back-to-back weeks, wouldn't it be really interesting if the Dolphins decided to run Ryan Fitzpatrick out there next week on Sunday against the Bills, win the game, and then go to the playoffs and start Tua? Wouldn't that be interesting? I couldn't imagine. Well, I cannot imagine what the Dolphins Twitter meltdown would look like if that uh, happened. Look, I, <laughs> I give Brian Flores a lot of credit, and there's a lot of things that I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt on. If he did that, <laughs> it would be dumb. Well, it I, would be dumb. It would be dumb. There's nothing, there's no, no way around. If Ryan Fitzpatrick, st- first off, no matter who the starting quarterback is in this game, which is obviously Tua, it, if Tua goes out there and plays really well and the Dolphins win, Tua's starting the next week. If Absolutely. he doesn't, 100%. that's dumb. And if they start Ryan Fitzpatrick and Ryan Fitzpatrick plays really well and they win, and then Ryan Fitzpatrick, after essentially leading his team to his first playoff berth ends up getting benched it's not only dumb it's disrespectful absolutely i listen i know you said it it was very tongue-in-cheek but i think i think the flores is doing a very good job with how he's managing this situation it is a unique situation it is it is different than other rookie quarterback situations and i think he's largely handling it very very well and he's he's even said he's gone on the record at the press conference after the game on Sunday. He said two was the starter. Two was the starter. And it seems like this is the way that he's rolling. And if that's how he wants to roll, then so be it. Let him roll that way. And, you know, uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. All we know is that the Dolphins had very, very poor odds of winning that game in Vegas at one point. But then Ryan Fitzpatrick, old Fitz magic, came into the game and he said, never tell me the odds. Just like Han Solo. And guess what? That's going to wrap us up for this week. Brain, this is the last time that people are going to hear from you and me together this year. Again, hopefully we'll get a segment from you uh, to preview the Buffalo game later in the week that we will attach to the show that I am recording on Thursday on New Year's Eve with a special guest from DolphinsTalk.com. You'll just have to stay tuned. Make sure you're subscribed to the show to make sure that that arrives in your earballs as soon as it is released. But for now, I encourage you, it's still the holiday season, so relax, enjoy, take care of yourselves and each other. 
and we will talk to you again next time. Bye-bye, everybody. Go Dolphins! Miami's got Dolphins, the greatest of all teams. We take the ball from